Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Daniel Stashauer will join us to discuss American Demon. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, when the name Elliot Ness comes up, law enforcement and integrity is the first that comes to mind. But the story of the man himself is perhaps more fascinating than some might realize. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Daniel Stashauer. Mr. Stashauer is a New York Times bestselling author, claimed biographer, and narrative historian, and winner of the Edgar, Agatha, and Anthony Awards and the Raymond Chandler Fulbright Fellowship in Detective Fiction. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Smithsonian Magazine, among others, and his books include The Hour of Peril, Teller of Tales, and The Beautiful Cigar Girl. He has penned the new book, American Demon, Elliot Ness, and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Mr. Stashauer, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. Well, certainly a fascinating book about Elliot Ness and one of the most uh, interesting aspects of career that many people might not know about. Here's why I decided to put this book together. Well, I grew up in Cleveland where this story takes place. And when I was about eight or nine, I heard a really grisly telling of a murder story while we were roasting s'mores around a campfire at summer camp. And believe me when I tell you, you did not have to embellish a whole lot to turn this story into the stuff of nightmares. I remember that at one point we had to stop and have the camp counselor explain what the word decapitated meant. I don't think I slept at all that night. There were repeated repetitions of the phrase, the killer is still out there. So now it's 50 years later, lo and behold, I'm a writer who does history and true crime. I'd always wanted to do a story set in my hometown. So it's a real full circle moment for me. In my head, I'm right back at that campfire at summer camp, only now I'm the counselor. I'm the one telling the story. And I guess you have to bring your own s'mores. <laughs> well, it really is a incredible series of crimes because a lot of people aren't that familiar of. I wonder if you can maybe set the scene when these murders were going on. Absolutely. It's, uh, the murders began even before Elliot Ness appeared on the scene. It's the 1930s, square in the middle of Depression-era America, and in Cleveland, this string of brutal murders was unfolding. Each of the victims appeared to have been beheaded. Some, it appeared, while still alive. And the remains, in most cases, were expertly dismembered and scattered across the city. You were getting these scenes of absolute horror popping up. A pair of schoolboys would stumble over a headless torso, or a severed limb would float down the Cuyahoga River, or a skull would be found rattling around in a tin can at the city dump. And each atrocity sparked a cycle of fear and outrage. And in the newspapers, you'd see blaring headlines, the mad butcher strikes again. Who is this mad torso killer? And one reporter said, this killer is that almost unknown creature, 
a master criminal, and he added that it can be powerfully argued that he was the greatest murderer of all time. Truly grisly, and the mad butcher for a reason. That was what happened to his victims. Absolutely. And it happened to be unfolding on the 50th anniversary of Jack the Ripper's crimes in London. So there were a lot of parallels drawn between what was happening in America and what had happened 50 years earlier in London. And there were a lot of parallels, but also troubling inconsistencies where the Ripper's victims had been female prostitutes. There was a real mix in the Butcher's victims. There didn't seem to be any discernible pattern had men and women, black and white, straight and gay. It posed a real challenge for the investigators. So how was the investigation going up to this time? And how did Elianes, who's perhaps better known for his war and prohibition and Al Capone, how did he get involved in all this? Well, it's a, it's a terrific question because, yeah, when we think of Elliot Ness, we think of a big truck smashing through the doors of an illegal brewery. We think of Chicago and we think of Capone. But all of that chapter of Ness's career was brief, and it was pretty much wrapped up by the time he turned 30. So he needs a second act, and he finds one in Cleveland as director of public safety. This is a big position. It's at the top of the law enforcement pyramid. He's in charge of the entire police department and the fire department and a whole lot more. And his marching orders are to clean up a police department that was basically rotting from within because of corruption and also to try to break the stranglehold that the mob had over the city. This was an equation Ness understood. He'd seen this kind of thing in Chicago. He'd done this kind of work in Chicago. But tracking a murderer, a particularly one as uh, diabolical as this one, that was outside the realm of his experience. And he and his team had to uh, invent a new playbook. Very different environment. Do you point out how did he adapt? What was his plan and what came of his efforts? The guy from television that we all know would have strapped on his holster and started kicking down doors. The real Elliot Ness was different. And it's important to point out that he wasn't a homicide detective. He wasn't expected to be one any more than he was expected to be a fireman or a crossing guard. He's at the top of the pyramid. Nobody expected him to walk a beat or rescue cats stranded in trees. But he's unique among people in this position. It's Elliot Ness. People expected heroics. And he'd made a point of saying that he would lead from the front lines. So as the pattern of these crimes gathered force, he had to step in. He pulled together a team, much in the mold of the untouchables. They worked outside of the system and under the radar, trying to get information off of the criminal grapevine, which is not to say that he ignored his official police effort. He devoted extra resources and manpower to his detective bureau. But this smaller, hands-on effort was very typical of him. He had a team around him, and they began identifying suspects, trailing suspects. He said very little publicly, but there was one notable statement. He said, I'm going to do all I can to aid in the investigation. I want to see this psycho caught. Several suspects, but none which really ever panned out. No, but there was a suspect that Ness and his team particularly liked for the crime. He was known as Dr. X. He was a doctor who had fallen on hard times and had a substance abuse problem. He checked a lot of boxes. From the beginning, the investigators believed that the killer must have knowledge and training that allowed for the surgical precision 
of the dismemberments that had been performed on the victims. They thought he must be a doctor of some kind or a butcher. That was the theory. Someone with anatomical experience. Ness's team started trailing many suspects, but in particular, this Dr. X. And apparently, the suspect took a kind of perverse pleasure in it, like it was a form of hide-and-seek. There are stories that he even called into police headquarters to comment on the poor quality of the surveillance effort and offered helpful tips about where he planned to be the next day. Well, at one stage, Ness and his men scooped this guy up, and they grilled him for a long time. But the suspect never cracked, and there wasn't any hard, fast evidence. Ness had to let him go eventually. And people will argue until the end of time over whether this guy was the killer in the same way that people debate the grassy knoll or Jack the Ripper. Ness remained alert to the possibility of other suspects, but he seems to have believed that this was the guy. And over time, with this guy under surveillance and and the, the pattern of killings came to a halt. Some people believe that he simply moved on to greener pastures. But I think that Ness thought he had run his guy to ground. Do you have an opinion on it? You know, I I could cheerfully argue either side of the equation. It's one of those things that unless an absolute smoking gun appears all these years later, which seems unlikely, people are going to argue about it until the end of time. For my purposes, it's enough that Elliot Ness believed he had his man. I've spent a lot of time with Elliot Ness over the over, over these past many years, and that's become good enough for me. Well, part of the draw of the story is a portrait of this person, one which is uh, more complicated than the one that he himself presented. I mean, a lot of the image that we have of him is through his own touchables. And what was your impression of Elliot Ness as a person? I mean, much of his stint in Cleveland. Yeah, it, it is, but, uh, but it's a fascinating story in that in many ways, Elliot Ness is exactly what you think. He's he's the man you described when you were introducing him. He's a hero, a man of great integrity and bravery, but he's more than that. He's more than the tough guy that we know from TV and the movies. He was a very forward-thinking reformer. He was as much about crime prevention as crime detection. And yes, he was astonishingly brave, and his exploits were spectacular. But on screen, uh, it's usually uh, he usually solves his problems with violence. And in real life, He rarely even carried a gun. In fact, he once told a friend that he didn't need it. The empty holster was enough. There's definitely some space between the Elliot Ness of legend and the Elliot Ness of real life. But the more I got to know the Elliot Ness, the real Elliot Ness, and the more I saw particularly the miracle that he brought off in Cleveland, the more I respect him. I mean, what was the most surprising thing you discovered in researching well, you know, uh, this is this is kind of a, a personal thing, but I was very surprised to find as I was looking through Ness's own scrapbooks, which are in Cleveland. Uh, you know, I'm looking through and there's, as you'd expect, there are clippings about Capone and uh, other gangsters and shining lights of the day. I also came across a picture of my grandfather, Fred P. Stashauer, which I thought must be a mistake. But it turns out they crossed paths at least once a year at a, at a kind of political roast they had every year, something like the Washington Correspondence Center. And Ness must have enjoyed it. He was he was a frequent target of their roasting, but apparently he took it in stride. He pasted a picture of the actors into his scrapbook and also an audience photo of himself laughing, apparently at his own expense. He may have been an untouchable, but he could take a joke. 
Was there anything in your family's note about having known Elianess? No, you know, I can't tell you what a surprise it was. I knew my grandfather for 34 years, long after that, uh, the great black and white TV series. And even after the Kevin Costner movie, he never mentioned it. It's a strange thing. I, I, I can't tell you what I would give to be able to talk to him about it now. <laughs> you, you would think it'd be something you'd mention. Yeah, you would have thought so, yeah. Of course, I mean, he had great political ambition, Ness, but it really never took off after his stand in Cleveland. There was kind of a decline. While he was director of public safety, people were always coming up to him and offering him the next big thing, whether it was running for political office, whether it was running for mayor of Cleveland, whether it was joining private business, whether it was taking, you know, some kind of corporate job. Ness wanted to play the hand he had been dealt, at least for the time being. He said, you know, someday I may take one of those jobs, but right now I've got the job I was appointed to do. And he was good at it. He recognized that job and he wanted to do that job. Then as, uh, you know, inevitably time marched on, World War II came along. He served with considerable distinction. He he did work uh, for the government during World War II. And when the war was over and things started to go back to normal, Ness did enter the business world, but he he got restless and decided maybe now was the time to run for mayor of Cleveland. So he came back and mounted an impressive campaign, but the city had moved on. And I think there was a sense that he was a figure from days gone by and he was pretty soundly defeated. So uh, he um, struggled along with uh, various business enterprises, some of which didn't go very well and passed away fairly young in his, uh, in his 50s. People picking up your book, what would you like them to take home about the case and Elliot Ness's involvement and how it shaped that period of that time? It's very much a story of a city struggling to get back on its feet, to shake off the lingering effects of the Great Depression. And it's also a story of uh, a man of extraordinary vision, Elliot, Elliot Ness, and a police department that rallied together mounted a massive effort, did everything they possibly could to try to hunt down this killer. And the lengths that they went to, the angles they pushed, they were the, the, they left no stone unturned. It's really, it was called at the time, the greatest manhunt ever mounted. And it, it's certainly among the greatest to this day. We were just talking with Mr. Daniel Stashauer, his new book, American Demon, Elliot Ness, and the hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Mr. Stashauer, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.